Around the Rock, the Scorers NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo. Happy New Year to all of basketball fans out there. And Happy New Year to you, my co-host, Joe Wolfel. We're, we're adding a new holiday to the calendar, eh? As we are. I, I kind of like it, you know? It's uh, a celebratory occasion, I it suppose. Is. Even though it marks the end of essentially our summer holiday. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that is a... Uh... A, a downside way to look at it, but let's keep this episode positive. Hey, we, we love what we do, man. It doesn't feel like work at no. all. Especially not when we get to do our bold predictions episode. I, I think I said this last year, about uh, last week, about our over-under achieving episode, but this is one of my favorite episodes of the year. <laughs> um, but before we get to those bold predictions, you mentioned how it's a, a joyous occasion. You know who it's really a joyous occasion for? The Milwaukee Bucks? Yeah, because they got Giannis Antetokounmpo to sign off on a three-year extension that keeps him in Milwaukee, or at least keeps him under contract through at least the 2026-27 season with a player option for 2027-2028. That's a surprise. Not not him re-upping in Milwaukee and still being committed to Milwaukee, but him taking that three-year max extension available to him this summer rather than taking the longer, more lucrative max available to him next summer. And in fact, at Bucks Media Day, when Giannis talked about the comments he made this summer, which were in you know designed to put pressure on the Bucks, it worked. They traded for Dame. Not saying that's the only reason they traded for him, but you know you can look at it from that perspective. But anyway, when he was talking about those comments and was being questioned about you know how this affects his willingness to commit to Milwaukee and sign an extension, he even joked about the fact that na- the only thing now is that he's just going to wait till next year because it doesn't make as much financial sense for him doing that. Like he even joked about that literally three weeks ago about how. You know, I'll probably like I'm gonna resign next year. It just doesn't make sense for me to do it now. Weeks later, and hours before the Monday deadline for him to sign the extension available this year, he did it. Yeah, uh, I weirdly wasn't that surprised. Like, I just think everything we've seen from Giannis suggests that he wants to stay in Milwaukee. He values not only the like the financial security, like he's gonna be financial. He's going to be financially secure. That's not really what's at issue. But I just think the the message that it sends is what's important to him. And showing that commitment, I feel like in terms of the comments that he made earlier in the summer, leading up to the Dame trade ultimately being consummated, it's kind of like, a, okay, you showed me that you're serious and now I'm going to show you that I'm serious. And ultimately, I don't know, most of this is going to come out in the wash. Right, like he'll be able to if he wants to opt out when he's going to be what thirty three, I think. I believe so. Yes. So at that point in time, like, yeah, maybe he won't be where he's at right now as a player, and I do think there could be some risk of like a precipitous downfall at some point, just because of the way that his game is structured. You know, it's based a lot on athleticism and physicality and things that might not age as well as if he was like an ace shooter or ball handler, but like he'll still get paid what he's worth at the age of 33. You know, I'm not thinking that that's going to be uh, I don't think he's losing a ton of money really by locking mm-hmm. this in now. I don't feel yeah. that way. And I, and I think ultimately, I don't know, maybe it's also a little bit about sending a message to Dame. This sort of lines up there free agency timeline. Yep. Uh, and I think that in terms of 
maybe making somebody who you know expressed a desire to be in one place and one place only which was not Milwaukee coming in yes with a lot of term left on his deal but also possibly a little bit of an itch to be somewhere else if there was any kind of uncertainty hanging over Giannis and and his status as a buck then maybe that would contribute to like an increased antsiness on Dame's part. And maybe part of the calculus here for Giannis is to be like, look, I'm going to be here. So don't think that you're going to be, you know, uh, having any kind of an excuse or a reason to get a wandering eye and try to force your way out before the, at least three years left on your deal are up. I don't know. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's not, but yeah, I, I just love everything about this from both sides and you kind of hit on it already in that he makes the comments this summer wants them to show the commitment they do that and then he in turn says okay you kind of did your part you showed that commitment that i wanted you to show now here's mine i love it i even wrote about it for a piece people can find on the score app today just about how Giannis has rewarded the Bucks for going all in again. Fortune favors the bold. What I really like about it is that, you know, you hear so much over the years and, and some people complain, some people like it. But when we talk about like the player empowerment era and and in a way like the player movement that it leads to and some people have had the debate or, you know, question whether it's good for the league. I think this is the perfect example. Like if the league ever wanted to point to a situation where look at how player empowerment worked and it's like as a blueprint for good vibes, this is it. Because here you have a guy in Giannis who found his voice over the years, right? And got to a point in his career where he tapped in to that very hard-earned influence that he has and the power that he wields, right? He's earned every bit of that. He taps into it. Yeah, he put some pressure on his incumbent team to do more and to show him that you know they were going to be as committed to and as well positioned to win as he's going to be right for the remainder of his prime the small market bucks in turn then throw caution to the wind and sell the farm for the second time in less than three full calendar years and trade for Damian friggin Lillard after the last time they did it for Drew Holiday it led to a championship and then Giannis rewards them for it and re-signs again, just like he did three years ago, by the way. When, if you remember, going into the 2020-21 season, all the talk was about Giannis probably not taking the max extension available to him at the time, the Supermax. Entering 2021 free agency, Miami and all the South Beach charm was waiting for him. The Raptors and Masai Ujiri's connection to him and his family was waiting for him. Every bigger market team that could carve out cap space was waiting for him. The Bucks were coming off two postseason flameouts after having the number one overall seed. They trade for Drew Holiday. Giannis signs that Supermax weeks later, and then months later leads them to the first championship in 50 years, wins finals MVP. Same stuff starts happening three years later, coming off, you know, first round postseason flame out as the number one overall seed. The vultures are circling again. This time it was more him that actually kind of like stoked some fears that he might leave. And everyone's talking about what his next team might be, what his next move might be. And all the while, John Horst and the Bucks do what they did last time, get to work on a blockbuster, Say FM picks, banners hang forever, trade for a star and the biggest star he's had as a teammate. And weeks later, just like a few years ago, Giannis 
signs on the dotted line. I just think that's a good, like, I think this is a good outcome for the NBA. It's like, here you, uh, yeah, there, there is an uh, um, element of this is about player empowerment and him putting pressure on the team. But then the small market team flexed its own muscles, not in spending necessarily, although they, they you know, they're going to have a top four payroll for the third straight year, but just in terms of like showing their commitment. And it worked. They got him to stay again. And they're going to be good for the next few years. Again, they have both him and Dame locked up for at least the next three years. Like, it, just all in all, I think it's a cool story, like of a team that understands the assignment when it comes to maximizing the window with an all-time talent like Giannis. That there is no guarantee you will ever have a talent like this again. Yeah, and I think, look, I'm all for players exercising their agency in whatever way they can you know, within reason, but like for the most part, yeah, like the NBA players are the NBA product and they should have agency, especially the superstars of the league. And they should exercise that agency in whatever way they see fit. But like, I'm also not going to say that, you know, if a concentration of superstars around the league are collectively trying to force their way to like three or four different markets that that's good for the NBA product. I think ultimately, yeah, small market teams being able to retain their stars as a counterbalance to, you know, other stars trying to find their way to LA or Miami essentially is a good thing. Like you need to have that balance and you need for these small and mid market teams to be able to feel like, they're on something of a level playing field. And I think in terms of like the front office and ownership in Milwaukee showing that willingness to go into the luxury tax, despite the fact that, yeah, maybe you're not going to be as profitable as a team like the Lakers, especially, you know, if you have a player like Giannis's caliber, I just feel like that investment is going to provide a decent return. Even if you're having to make a luxury tax payment that you would rather not have to make, like that's going to be much better than the alternative, which is falling short because you're not willing to spend and ultimately losing the best player in franchise history, essentially. Uh, I mean, they did have Kareem Abdul-Jabbar at one point in time, but uh, he wasn't there for as long as Giannis was. He ultimately found his way to LA, right? Giannis wants to stay and he's showing that commitment. He's sticking around. So uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I hesitate to like give credit to to billionaires being willing to spend a fraction of their billions on a team that they decided to buy like and invest in. So, you know, I don't think they necessarily deserve credit for that. I think it just goes to show how far that can go. And I think ultimately it's like if you're if you're investing in an NBA team, then invest in an NBA team. I do think John Horst, general manager John Horst deserves credit though because I think there are a lot of people in his position that would be a little spooked about the idea of trading as many future picks as he has and they'd be thinking about the idea of like, oh, but you know, if Giannis still wants to leave and now we've traded all those picks and we've sold the farm and what are we going to do then? Again, a guy who kind of understands it, gets it, understands the assignment and realizes, one, I might not be here myself in a few years and if Giannis leaves, even less of a chance I'll be here. I, as a GM, as an executive, have this rare once-in-a-generation opportunity most executives don't have to have a guy like Giannis in his prime, under contract, on the team I run. I'm going to do everything in my power to maximize that window because mm-hmm. that's the one we're in and we have a chance to win and that may never come again. So I'm with you on not necessarily giving ownership all the credit. You know, this is the same ownership group that let P.J. Tucker walk to save some tax uh, money right after winning the championship. But 
I do believe John Horst deserves all the credit he gets. Yeah, I mean, just speaking of the ownership, like I remember when Mark Lazary sold his majority stake in the team. I think that happened back in April. And a lot of people at the time were saying, especially after those Giannis comments came out, that that was probably part of the reason is that he could maybe see this on the horizon, like Giannis ultimately leaving. I don't know. I wonder how he's feeling about having sold that stake when he did now that uh, he's seen, you know, Dame come aboard and Giannis essentially commit for an additional three years. I don't know. It's probably eating gold plated caviar on a yacht somewhere. So I'd imagine not feeling too bad about it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, he walked away with a cool three and a half billion dollars. It's probably not something to lose sleep over, but I just think that's interesting that, you know, the way that it was pitched at the yeah. time was well, he could see the writing on the wall, but yeah, I don't know. This was not, I guess, the writing that that he saw on the wall. It was in different uh, different font, I suppose. <laughs> well, speaking of being able to see the writing on the wall, we want to get to some uh, prognostications, some predictions for the coming season that aren't actually necessarily always that realistic because <laughs> there are bold predictions. These aren't just regular predictions that you can find anywhere, which mm-hmm. you can find my own regular predictions for awards, players, and teams uh, on this Friday's episode of Unfiltered on the Scores YouTube channel. These are our bold predictions. and we've got- Yes, indeed. This is um, an exercise that we're now doing for the third year. And uh, you better believe I've been keeping score, Cash. So would you like me to tell you how we did last year? Probably not well. But I would. <laughs> I would also imagine... Again, because these are supposed to be bold, I would imagine we're we're batting like under 50%, under 500 here. Yeah, well under, but yeah. I think probably if you're batting over 500 on bold predictions, They're you're not, not making predictions that are bold enough. Uh, but yeah, I... Okay, so I'll, I'll let you know how it shook out, and there's one that was kind of controversial, and you can tell me how you want to score it. Because that will determine whether I won this round or not. But basically, I won the previous two. Okay. So Sounds like you're not being bold enough, Wolfon. Possibly not. But I'll I'll tell you what predictions we made. And obviously, uh, you and the listeners will be able to tell right off the bat which ones came to fruition and which ones didn't. So uh, the one that I hit on was that I said the Kings would make at least the play-in round. And that might not seem super bold in hindsight, but considering this was a team that hadn't tasted the postseason in 17 years, I think it definitely qualified. And obviously they did more than just make the play and they finished as the third seed in the Western Conference. Uh, The one that you hit on was you had the Hornets racking up 55 or more losses and man, by the skin of your teeth, did that one come through for you? They lost exactly 55 games. And they were coming off a winning season, by the way, when I made that prediction. They were coming off a winning season, but obviously they were going to be without Miles Bridges and LaMelo was starting the season on the shelf. He wound up only playing 36 games. It's kind of a miracle they they made it to 27 wins, honestly, but uh, that was not maybe the boldest pick of all, but again, you got there, so... Those are the ones we got right. The one that it was controversial, which I don't know if you want to give me a half a point or just 
give me a zero because it was a joint prediction and it, like it's like a parlay, right? I got a hit on both in order to win. Correct. It was that Embiid would win MVP, which he did. But because I didn't think that on its own was bold enough, I said the Sixers would also finally make it past the second round for the first time since 2001. I can't give you a half point here, there, and here's why. One, the the Embiid side of it, I don't think you could qualify as bold enough given that he was coming off back-to-back runner-up finishes in the MVP uh-huh. race. And so I think in conjunction with the Sixers making the conference finals is what made it a bold prediction and that just didn't happen and 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 your faith in that cast of postseason frauds deserves all the ridicule we can muster so no i will not give you a half point for that unfortunately fair fair it was close man they they were up by like five points with five minutes left in game six of the east semis tough yeah uh okay so then yeah we we tied this round one a piece the ones that we got wrong I said that avoiding the play-in in in the East would require at least 50 wins, which was not the case at all. The Nets finished with 45, and they were the sixth seed. I had a lot of faith in the the top of the East, and the top four teams all cracked 50 wins, but after that, there was a bit of a drop-off. The Knicks had 47, and maybe if the Nets had kept the band together, they would have hit that 50-win plateau, but that still wouldn't have been good enough to make my prediction come true. I also had a team, I can't remember which, finishing as the number one seed in the West, but suffice it to say that didn't happen. And I also had Evan Mobley becoming the youngest ever defensive player of the year. He did wind up finishing third. And I will say, I'm not saying I'm going to retroactively call this a win if he wins defensive player of the year this year, but he is my pick to win defensive player of the year this year. And he would still be the youngest ever winner of that award if he actually does win it. Then the ones you got wrong, Cash, you had the Pelicans finishing as the number one offense in the league. They finished 20th. You had Pascal Siakam finishing top five in MVP voting. That didn't happen. Christian Wood winning sixth man of the year. And the Bucks winning the championship. Yeah. Well, that Bucks one, like your Mobley one, just a year delayed. It's, it's going to happen this year. We can get to that, I suppose. All right. So why don't we dive into it? We've got five each, 10 bold predictions coming at you today, two of which will be correct. Get us started, Wolfon. All right. So I basically already uh, spoiled this one on our previous episode, but I've got three Northwest Division teams finishing the top five in the Western Conference. Obviously, it's in no way bold to say the Nuggets are going to be one of the top five teams in the West. I'd be shocked if they're not one of the top two. But I've also got the Wolves and the Thunder finishing top five. And how could that not qualify as bold, Cash? That's pretty bold, man. The Thunder Um, part of it, obviously. Ah, The Wolves part of it, too, but... Yeah, I think the the Wolves one is more defensible. The Thunder are just a, a young team that I have maybe an inordinate amount of faith in, but I just think Shea is truly that dude. And I really think Chet is like, maybe he's not ready to be this right now, but he, he truly is like the perfect addition for the team. It's no. like... He, he gives them so much of what they've been missing without taking anything off the table, without taking away from 
the kind of unique play style that I think caught a lot of the league off guard last season, like all the driving, the relentless drive and kick and drive and kick. Like he doesn't get in the way of that. He gives them the rim protection and hopefully some of the rebounding that they need while still keeping the floor spaced for that endless drive and kick engine to, uh, to keep humming at the offensive end. And so I just, I, I like what that could do to change the shape of their team while just getting, I mentioned this about the Cavs too, like the, the Cavs in the Eastern Conference, I think are the team that can stand to benefit most from just internal development because of how good they already were and how young their core players are. And that's just true of the Thunder as well, right? Like they, apart from Chet, they're not really adding anything of any significance, but I just think between him and Shea and Giddy and Jalen Williams, it's like, all of these young guys who have room to get better. And if that happens, then yeah, I I could totally see them being, you know, one of the top four or five teams in the West. Yeah. I mean, look, we've talked about it, about how perfect of a piece Chet is for them very much plugs a lot of holes and is, is the missing piece in a lot of ways. So I think it completes their team, but I also think one, the West is, too good for me to just expect a very very young team that won 40 games last year to make a huge leap and make the kind of leap big enough that would propel them to the top four or five and two even with respect to how well Chet completes this puzzle I still think it's expecting a lot of a 21 year old rookie big man who's coming off a serious foot injury like I I'm not saying he won't get there eventually and I'm not like he'll be better than most rookies and more impactful on a winning team than most rookies right away. I'm just not sure he'll be able to give them what they need at that level to take them from like that 40 win play in team to, you know, probably a 50 plus win team in this year's West to get them where you think they can go. I want to see, I think it'd be a fun story. Just not sure they can make that year to year jump. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that's where we see it differently. Not not even in terms of like the kind of jump they're capable of making, but I don't necessarily see them as a 50 win team, but I don't think that's what it's going to take to get up to fifth in the West. You know, yeah, I fifth, think fair, fair, you know, like 48, 49 wins could do it. So I do like, uh, I mean, this isn't one of my bold predictions, but Jalen Williams, number eight, not number six is going to, uh, I think going to finish pretty high in the most improved player balloting. Interest. I mean, that's gonna be tough to do given sophomore. the rookie season that he's coming off mm-hmm. of. The, the fact that I think whether it's justified or not, like my feeling about most improved has always just been who improved the most. You know, like who cares what was expected of these yep. players, where they were picked in the draft, where they are on their development track. You know, what what like people have these rules about it can't be a second year player. It's like who cares who improved the most. Mm-hmm. But I do think when it comes to voters and and what sways them that that can impact things, right? Like if Jalen Williams came in, he had a really good rookie year. You expect him to take another step as a sophomore. It just, I think in a lot of people's minds raises the bar for the kind of jump he'd have to make in order to get consideration for that award. And also because uh, the winner of that award, my first bold prediction is going to be Scotty Barnes. Okay. The 2022 Rookie of the Year. It's going to be the 2024 Most Improved Player. A lot of this is going to seem like I'm just basing it a lot on preseason, and I, I realize there could be people rolling their eyes about how meaningless the preseason is. But what I will say is, 
everyone in Toronto remembers how frustrating and miserable last Raptor season was on the way to 41 wins. And most people should remember Scotty Barnes' role in that frustrating season. His development stagnated. He did not start the season with the same focus or intensity from the eye test, and he didn't start it with the same conditioning, admittedly, by him. That's why he did all the running and the conditioning this year to have the ball more, to have the ball more in uh, new head coach Darko Ryakovich's system, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things you may not remember is that the concerns about Scotty last year actually started in the preseason when he was brutal. He was not good. And that carried over to the regular season. It ended up being an indicator of what was to come. Well, if this year's preseason is an indication of what's to come, the way last year's was on the opposite end, then Raptors fans and Scotty Barnes enthusiasts should be very, very excited. In only 22 minutes per game, which is pretty standard for starters in the preseason, Barnes averaged about 19 points, 6 rebounds, 3 assists, 2 blocks, and a steal. As we were talking off-air, Wolfon, before starting this recording, he also made 7 of 14 three-point attempts. Now, look, extremely small sample size in meaningless games, but I do think when it comes to the preseason, like, the overall results when it comes to wins and losses, maybe, or like, you know, an outlier performance here or there, can be tossed aside. But I do think that there are certain things when it comes to trends or how a player is playing or looking or a team is playing that you can say will have some carryover. And I loved the way Scotty Barnes looked in the preseason. I love the way he was approaching things. I love the way he looks in Darko's system. I have a lot of faith in what he can do this season. If you add it all up from the preseason, you know, NBA.com's got this, uh, this, all-in-one metric called the player impact estimate. If you look at players who played at least two games, they played multiple preseason games this month and logged at least 15 minutes per game, and you sort them by this NBA.com player impact estimate, unsurprisingly, you'll find that the two highest-ranked players are the two players we widely accept as the best in the world right now, Nikola Jokic and Giannis Antetokounmpo. And the fourth ranked player was Kevin Durant and the fifth one was Lowry Markkinen so although it's the preseason you can still see ah okay you know a lot of the best players still separate themselves on an NBA court even in a meaningless exhibition contest you know who was the third ranked in player impact estimate among the 328 players that met that qualification after Jokic and Giannis Scotty Barnes now I'm not saying he's gonna be the third best player in the NBA I'm also not saying Lowry Markkinen is gonna be the fifth one but I think there are enough positive indicators there that he's going to have more of the kind of season people expected from him last year coming off the rookie of the year. And I think because it's coming off of what he was last year, it's going to seem more impressive and like more of a breakout or an improvement. And so I'm giving him most improved player. Yeah, it's funny. It just hit me, you mentioning Markkinen as part of that top five in player impact estimate. I don't actually really know how that metric is calculated, so I don't ever use it. But uh, you mentioning that just reminded me why I don't ever feel confident picking this particular award. It's like, throw a dart at the board, you know? Like, that, it it so often just comes completely out of left field. And that's, that's part of the point, right? Like, as we're not supposed to see it coming. That speaks to what I was saying before about how I think for voters, a lot of the time it's like who made this, you know, not just a big leap, but a really unexpected one. And like looking back at, at recent winners of it, it's like 
you know, Lowry a couple of years before that was Julius Randall, Oladipo in, in 2018, um, you know, CJ McCollum, his, his explosion kind of came out of nowhere. Like Goran Dragic, Ryan Anderson. Like I think there are some that you could see coming for sure, but a lot of them that just sort of come out of left field. And I feel like the, the safe bet is on something like that happening again, where somebody who's not on anybody's long list of potential most improved winners winds up winning it. But when I was sort of thinking about who I anticipated winning and put together a list of my own, I do feel like a lot of the players that, that were coming up were third year guys. Like I, if I had to bet, even though I'm just acknowledging that it's a, a shot in the dark and it will probably be wrong. But if I did have to bet, I feel like I would just say it's probably going to be a third year guy, whether it's Scotty or Franz Wagner, who wound up being my pick or Cade or I don't know, Jalen Green, uh, Giddy, like one of those third year guys who has shown, you know, progress to varying degrees up to this point, but obviously has at least one or two of those guys has like a quantum leap in them somewhere. And I think a lot of the time of third year is when you see that leap get taken, you know, by, by a lot of these highly touted prospects that show that potential early on. So if I had to rank my, I, I have Scotty as my MIP, but if I had to rank them, uh, I had five guys. It was Scotty, Tyrese Maxey, Austin Reeves, Franz Wagner, and Jalen Williams. I, I think that's, yeah, it was a perfectly defensible pick. And I, I think it does qualify as bold just because of, how random this award yeah. tends to be. And also I think, you know, in spite of how good he looked in preseason, it's still bold just because last year was a, a disappointment for Scotty. And it's not like, you know, a sure thing that he's going to rebound from that, especially because as I think we've talked about a lot, the roster context isn't super conducive to him, maybe unlocking the best version of himself. But from what we saw in preseason, that won't necessarily be an impediment to him taking a big step forward. I actually think I'm more excited for the leap he could take on defense than I am for like what he could do uh, on offense relative to where he was at last year. Like, I just think to this point, in terms of his physical tools, he's been kind of disappointing defensively. And part of that, I think, is scheme. Like, I just... It, I didn't love the way the Raptors deployed him last year. He was at the point of attack more than I would have liked. And his technique at the point of attack, I don't think is great. He has this tendency to really press up and try to pressure the ball. But like, I don't think he rotates his hips quick enough or is able to move laterally quick enough when he's guarding these shifty uh, like point guards to actually like be able to press up on them and prevent them from blowing by him. So I'm looking to see more of him kind of on the weak side, being a rover, secondary rim protector, like providing that backline help. Because I think that's where he could really, really excel. Uh, and even honestly, like part of the issue, at least last year, was I think the role that looked most conducive to his success offensively was playing small ball five. But that didn't look tenable defensively. Whereas actually like, in the preseason, there were a bunch of times when he was playing, you know, nominally center when I thought he looked way better defensively doing that. Like just like positioning in drop his instincts, like being able to be kind of that last line of defense. Again, it's preseason, 
but that looked a lot more tenable this time around than it did last year. And that, that could be a huge game changer for him if that can carry over. Yep. Where are we going next? All right. So I might as well go here because I already talked about Chet and the impact that I think he can have on the Thunder. Initially, this one was just going to be that Victor Wembanyama as a rookie is going to make one of the all defensive teams. And I honestly thought that didn't feel bold enough just because like watching him in preseason is like, it feels like he's walking into the NBA as like a ready-made all defensive center or not center. I guess he's going to play power forward, but all defensive caliber, big man. So where I wound up going with this prediction is number one and two in blocks per game this year. Both going to be rookies. Wemby and Chet, one and two. I like it. I mean, it's definitely bold. It is. But honestly, like those, like the shot blocking prowess, their length, their timing, it's, I mean, like I would not be at all surprised if Wembenyama leaves the league in blocks. I think the Chet coming second is, is like the bolder part of that equation. But yeah, I was going to say a sophomore might disrupt that top two because Walker Kessler is going to have something to say about it. I mean, Walker Kessler's going to have something to say about it. Jaron Jackson's going to have something to say about it. Brooke Lopez is going to have something to say about it. It's bold, which is the point. But I think not only like the length of those two guys, their shot-blocking instincts, like they're obviously capable of blocking a lot of shots. But I think also, just sort of from, from what I've seen in terms of how they're going to be used defensively, and the fact that Wemby is going to be playing the four, and Chet, I guess... He'll be listed at center. He'll probably like jump for the opening tip most games. But like, I think there are going to be a lot of occasions defensively when they're using him more as a roamer off the ball. And I think it's easier to rack up a lot of blocks when you're playing that role than it is when you're defending the opposing team center and like defending a lot of primary pick and roll action. Like, you're just not racking up a ton of blocks necessarily when like you're playing as a drop man compared to when like you're coming over in weak side help. And I think if those guys are used in those roles more frequently, then that's going to be conducive to them racking up a lot of blocks, much in the way that we saw with Jaron last year. Now, you know, Jaron is also one of the best weak side shot blockers that I've ever seen, but I don't see why, especially with Wembenyama in terms of his ability to close space, in like the blink of an eye, why he couldn't do something similar. So that's uh, that's where I came up with this bold prediction. Yeah, I like it. I don't have much to add. All right, you ready for mine? Hit me. Desmond Bain averages at least 25 points and five assists on 50-40-90 shooting over the first 25 games without John Morant. Now, I will say... I had this bold prediction for a few a couple weeks ago. It was part of my, you know, being high on the Grizzlies despite John missing the first 25 games, how I thought they were built to survive that. I was even leaning with going with them as my Western Conference finalist. A lot of that has gone out the window with Steven Adams already being ruled out for the year. I just think now there's too much uncertainty with him out for the year, all the things he brings, like screening and rebounding and everything, and 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 job being out at least 25 games. Too much uncertainty for me to stay that high on the team but I still am that high on Desmond Bain. You actually mentioned last week, his numbers with Jaw out of the lineup last year were basically 25 and five. His efficiency last season uh, for the season was 
48% field goal percentage, but 53% from two-point range, 41% from deep, 88% from the free throw line. And he averaged 21.5 points and 4.4 assists per game for the season. But again, it was more like 25-5 and when Ja was out of the lineup. I think Bain is going to continue to get better as he has basically every year of his career. He's outrageously efficient. And I think with Ja out of the lineup, for such an extended period of time and them knowing that it's not like last year, he was in the lineup out of the lineup. You didn't know what was going on. They know they don't have job for the first 25 games. Bain's going to soak up much of the offense and a lot of the on ball stuff. I think he is more than ready for it. And I think he's going to put out some pretty insane numbers from an efficiency and volume standpoint. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you don't even think that's bold enough. I don't know, but uh, I think the 25 and five is not bold at all. I think that's like, the floor again given that's exactly what he averaged when he played without jaw last year and it was on 62 percent true shooting it wasn't quite 50 40 90 i mean the 50 40 90 is what makes it bold yep. just because for the number of threes that he takes getting to 50 percent field goal percentage is going to take some doing All right, especially cool. carrying the, the sort of volume uh that he's what going if, to be relied on to carry for that Grizzlies offense? What if offense? I slightly amend it to your 50-40-90, the modern 50-40-90, uh, which is 50% inside the arc, 50% from two-point range, 40% from deep, 90% from the free throw line. Do you do you think that's still an appropriate level of bold? I do, by the way, because it, it would still require him upping both his three-point percentage. Actually, it would require him upping, yeah, his three-point percentage and his free throw percentage by multiple percentage points with higher volume. Yeah, so I guess you could say it's bold in the sense that if you gave me that stat line and were like, is he going to hit this or is he not? If I get it right, I win the bet and that's all it is. I would say, no, he won't get there just because I would say he's going to be taking more shots, more threes, more threes off the dribble. Getting a 90% on free throws is really difficult. So, yeah, I would say odds are he won't get there. If you were to say average 25 and 5 on like 60 plus percent true shooting, I would say, yes, he'll do that or better. But given your 50, 40, 90 criteria and the fact that I think it is more likely not to happen than it is to happen, I will allow it as a bold prediction. But this is, to me, on the more conservative side All right. of bold. Um but I think we're both on the same page in that we both very much believe in Desmond Bain as the kind of player who, frankly, looks capable of carrying an offense by himself right now. Now, I don't think if you want to be an elite offense, you want Desmond Bain to be your number one guy because I don't think the playmaking is quite there yet. But in terms of what he can do creating for himself... I mean, it's. I think this year he's going to show that he can do that as well as all but you know a small handful of players in the league. So definitely, he's in for for a huge year. Uh, my next one, and again, this is one that I sort of teased on our last episode, but I think the Cavs are finishing ahead of one of Boston or Milwaukee in the regular season standings. I know that very much looks like a duopoly in the Eastern Conference right now. And if we're talking about playoff ceiling, I do believe that it is. But in the regular season, I think the Cavs can hang right there with both of those teams. 
And, you know, I, I still think that they're capable of finishing as the number one seed. But I, after the trades those teams made, I sort of had to scale it back a bit and just say they're finishing ahead of one of them. Uh, I think they're, given their youth, they're, I mean, they're not like so much deeper than either of those teams, but like they're a little bit deeper than they were last year. And I just think the the risk of them taking a big injury that winds up, you know, lowering their regular season win total is lower than that of either Milwaukee or Boston. And so uh, I just think, I, I think they're built well for the regular season. And I, I feel like it's definitely plausible, if still bold, to say that they're going to finish ahead of one of those teams. Yeah, I'll give it to you checking the bold box because on paper they are not nearly as good as Boston and Milwaukee, but I actually agree with you. I I would pick that to happen right now because I think from a regular season standpoint, they will find a way to win enough games. They're going to pile up wins in the regular, barring something catastrophic. I think they'll do. I think they'll get to fifty five plus wins. Um, I, I think they're just a really well built and pretty balanced team. I think you know Mitchell having a year under his belt there now, another year of development for Evan Mobley, heck, another year of development for Darius Garland, who's still pretty damn young himself and already an excellent offensive basketball player. I think there's a lot going for them here. And even if, you know, you you don't believe in them in the postseason based on what happened last year and some of the roster construction issues, that's fine. But if we're just talking regular season, I'm with you. I think they end up finishing top two in the East. And the big thing will be, and this is something we talked about actually when we were on the Raptors show with Will Lou, is whether they can push both teams and finish first because if they do that means they avoid Boston and Milwaukee for two rounds and that means that you know highly anticipated matchup is likely happening before the conference finals unless one of them drops all the way to four so I think the Cavs are a a really fascinating team to monitor all season because I do think they'll get into the top two and could potentially push for one I really do based on how uh, many wins they can win and that's actually this is not one of my bold predictions I, I mean it could have been It's not, because I already did an award one, but also part of why I'm actually picking J.B. Bickerstaff to win Coach of the Year. Not because I think he's going to be the best performing coach, but because we know how this award is usually won, and it's with an overachieving coach. And even though he might have like fit that mold more last year when they quote-unquote surprised with 51 wins, I think based on how outrageous the expectations, and rightfully so are, for the league's top four, I think for one of like, Joe Mazzula or Adrian Griffin or Frank Vogel or Mike Malone to win the award. One of those teams would have to like run away from the pack so far. I don't think it's realistic. And then when you start looking at the next wave of teams, like Mark Daniels, actually the betting favorite to win the award because everyone expects that jump from the thunder. But as I discussed, I just think that type of jump is too tough. And so when I start to think about it, I'm like, if the Cavs end up with a top two record, which I actually think they will. And the rest of the league kind of goes the way I will. Like who's going to get that, quintessential like overachieving team vote for coach of the year i think it's going to be bigger stuff all right so let me put you on the spot here okay you think they're getting that that two seed who are they finishing ahead of i think milwaukee i think uh-huh. i think the celtics I, I don't even know it's that they're like built better for the regular season i just think i don't think it's any more complicated than boston is a more balanced team like they're going to be a better two-way team if there's one of these teams where i'm like Oh yeah, they'll finish top five in offense and defense, which by the way, Boston did last year. They're much more likely to do that than Milwaukee is. And I, you know, in the regular season, I like both of these teams are going to be really, really good offensively. Um, Like Boston's probably at, at 
slightly greater risk of the injury thing biting them, you know, between Porzingis and obviously Horford is 37. And not that he's like a particularly injury prone player. He's just old. <laughs> and uh, they, again, beyond their top six, as we've said before, it's kind of one big question mark. Whereas with Milwaukee, I think there's a little bit more of a foundation there with, you know, Portis and Jay Crowder and Connaughton and, you know, even Beauchamp. Like, I think they're, you can see them kind of patching things together with their bench a little bit more than you can see it with Boston. So in that sense, you might be inclined to tilt toward Milwaukee, but I think just in terms of the two-way balance, like that's what, I don't know, that's that's what gives you a ton of regular season wins. So yeah. I would agree that even though I didn't, uh, I didn't say specifically Milwaukee because I gave myself a bit more of an out. Uh, but if I had to pick, it would be Milwaukee that the Cavs finish ahead of as well in the regular season. All right. We're already five into this thing. So we're halfway there. Let's take the break, come back, and uh, I'll give you my third bold prediction. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, well, Fawn, much like your Sixers and Embiid-related bold predictions last season, I'm going to go with a, a bit of a uh, player and team parlay here. Although I think mine's actually bolder than yours was last year because I think mine's more unlikely, if I have to be honest. And it's that. Chris Paul wins sixth man of the year and the Warriors make the conference finals. Chris Paul has started all 1,214 games he's ever played in the NBA. And depending on when you listen to this, because Draymond Green is not playing in the season opener, if you listen to this Wednesday or later, it's very possible that it'll be the first 1,215 games of Chris Paul's career that he started instead of coming off the bench. But I think... I'd say it's guaranteed. Right. So at least the first 1,215 games of his career, including the first one of the season, he started and I'm picking him to win sixth man of the year. I've waxed poetic on this show. I've I dedicated a whole episode of Unfiltered to it about how I'm a big fan of what Chris Paul could bring to the Warriors, giving them a curveball on offense, allowing them to you know attack in kind of different ways, giving Secret the option of having more structured pick and roll play if he wants to, how he can really elevate Jonathan Kaminga's game as a young rim runner. Um, how he can prop up Curryless lineups, and 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 this is the thing. It's I think Chris Paul's going to start some games. I think he's going to finish plenty, and I think he's going to play plenty with Curry and the Stars. But I think he will be most useful to the Warriors, and I think they will find that coming off the bench to start games and propping up those Curryless lineups, and then finding his way into lineups with the rest of those guys as they go on. If it goes as swimmingly as I think it could, and he ends up winning Sixth Man of the Year, meaning that it all fits together perfectly and there are you know, no major issues. They don't, heck, they don't trade him at some point this season. Then uh, I'm going with the Warriors also making it to the conference finals. They'll lose to Denver once there, but uh, there you go. There's my player and team parlay two in one bold prediction combination. What say you about that? Uh, I say that it feels more likely to me that Chris Paul wins sixth man of the year than it does that the Warriors make it to the conference finals. 
I just have a man. As much as I believe in Steph and just what he's capable of, almost on his own, I, I just feel like they're not. I even think I, I feel like I have them finishing in the top six. Like maybe at the, like at the bottom of that. I think when I did it, I had them finishing six. So I still have some level of faith in them to be a player in the Western Conference. But I just don't know that they're that team anymore. Like Draymond still a defensive force, getting older. Uh, Clay still an incredible shooter, getting older. Like really struggled as a two-point scorer last season, had a rough go of it in the playoffs, defensively, not what he was. I mean, I think, like, just point to the defense, right? Like, what? Like, are the Warriors going to be able to be the kind of defensive team that they've been over the last few years that has been a huge uh, propellant of their success? Like, I, I don't know, man. Like, even, you know, thinking about the, like, why it really makes sense for, CP to be coming off the bench is I just think they're way too small if he's starting. Yeah, on the perimeter especially. I yeah I don't know so I, that, I'm just having a hard time seeing them as a conference finalist. But uh, like the the CP thing, I, I can totally see him winning Sixth Man of the Year because, like, yeah, it, it's just like he's probably the best player who by the end of the season will be coming off of the bench even at the age of 38. So, yeah, I but but I yeah, in terms of them making the conference finals, that's where I I think uh, I have a hard time seeing it, but you know, I think it's interesting that you bring that up and it can kind of segue to this point unrelated to our bold predictions. We'll get to your fourth one soon, but I think that the that kind of second West finalist, like I know I'm assuming you're going with Phoenix and I think you actually had them winning the West, if if I'm not mistaken. Um, mm-hmm. And I think most people would say, no, duh, it's obvious who that you know other West Finals team is. It's Phoenix. But I do think, look, between some of the depth and durability issues we've talked about with Phoenix, and I think Beal is already, it's a back issue, hopefully not too serious, but he won't play in the first game. I think you can like find pretty concerning issues with every team outside of Denver. I'm not saying Denver's perfect. They lost Bruce Brown. They're, you know, they'll have answers to que- they'll have questions to answer over the course of the season like any team, but just in terms of like if you had a really high expectation of any non-Denver West team, there are reasons to think it's going to come crashing down. Whether it's like Phoenix the the depth and the durability already rearing its ugly head plus the defensive concerns, uh Golden State, everything you mentioned, the age, the size on the perimeter, all of that, and even them Durability concerns. Draymond's already starting the season. Heard. Uh, the Clippers, we don't need to tell people about the issues there and whether Kawhi and PG will play enough um, to have them go on a deep run. The Lakers, who, you know, a team I gave heavy consideration for to make the West Finals. They just came off making the West Finals. But even them, it's like, man, expecting LeBron and AD to play enough to get to two West Finals in a row at this point, in my opinion, seems like a bit of wishful thinking. And then the Grizzlies, the team that I was kind of leading there, even without Joff for 25 games, end up ruling Steven Adams out for the year. So like a lot of those teams to me after Denver that each have a case to be that next team in the West Finals, they're going into the season with a lot of questions. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. Um, but I will 
move this over to my next bold prediction because it is a seamless segue. It's actually another player and team parlay, but not quite as synergistic. All right. So I've got Jokic winning MVP for the third time in four years. I actually agree. I just think on top of the fact that he is like the consensus best player in the league, I feel like there will be almost like a, like a makeup voting push for him after he lost out to Embiid last year, which is a pick that I was fine with. I made the case for Embiid winning and you know, I thought it was basically neck and neck and we were splitting hairs. Was no contest in the postseason, obviously, and Jokic clearly established himself as the league's best player. So I, I think from that, there will be almost a reflexive push to reward him. But I think the Nuggets aren't coming out of the West. In spite of them right now looking like the favorite to do so, I am picking the Suns to beat them in the West Finals. This is a bet on the Suns staying healthy, which is what makes it super risky and bold in my mind. It's also, I think it's bold for a few other reasons because there are concerns beyond just like the health factor with the team's, you know, core quartet. And then beyond the quartet, like there just isn't a a whole ton of depth to recommend this team. But like, I feel like if they are healthy, I don't know what you do. I don't know how you stop them. I don't know how you defend this team when they have those three guys who are all such good creators, but also so good at playing off of the ball. And they're all out there together and interacting in screening actions together and zipping around, coming off of pin downs, engaging weak side help defenders, able to, I mean, if a possession stalls out, any one of them can salvage it in isolation do they have enough defense to get them over the hump? I mean, that's going to be the big question. But I think if KD can be the defender he was last season, if Booker, I mean, like what he showed as a defender in especially the playoffs last year was pretty eye-opening to me. Like, I think he's well past the point of being a defensive minus. I think at this point, you could almost call him a defensive plus at the two spot. Beal's the big question mark, but I'm banking on him looking better this year than we've seen him look in the past, both because of motivation and because of a reduced offensive workload. And then Nurkic kind of gets a bad rap defensively because he just doesn't move all that well horizontally and he doesn't get off the ground, but he's super solid, like really good post defender. And I just think the rebounding that he brings, which I've alluded to before, that big upgrade going from Aiton to Nurkic as a rebounder, and especially as a team rebounder, not just like grabbing individual rebounds, but like doing the nitty gritty box out work required to like get team rebounds. I think that's going to make a big difference for a team that had struggle, had a lot of struggles cleaning their own glass last season. So I think with all that said, even looking at the kind of depth they cobbled together, just with like those minimum signings. I've said it before, it's kind of fake depth, but what I what I appreciate in terms of what they've done is they got enough of these guys who are capable of being NBA rotation players. Enough that I feel confident that like two or three of them are going to hit. 
bunch of them are not going to be able to play in the playoffs. But a couple of them, I think, will be. Whether it's Nas Little, whether it's Utah, you know, whether it's Eric Gordon, whether it's Josh Okoji, like a couple of those guys are going to be able to round out a, a very strong eight-man rotation. And I just think if they're healthy, again, the big caveat, if they're healthy, their offense is going to be so hard to stop that if they're just like average or passable defensively, then I still think that they can win this conference. I hear you and I get all that. I guess my qualm with this team is that I don't think they're going to be good enough and passable defensively, especially by the end of the year, especially given that I'm not convinced all three of their big three, let alone their big four, when you include Nurkic, who hasn't played 60 games in four or five years, I don't think they will be in the physical condition by April and more importantly, May and June to be even passable defensively and good enough. When you're talking about that inner tier of top four contenders we've written about, we've talked about with uh, the Nuggets, the Bucks, and the Celtics already in there, like against pretty much the other 26 teams in the league, I agree that that offense is just going to be too overwhelming for that lackluster defense to make a difference. But against Denver, who offense is a problem in its own right to contain, you know, ask any team last season, against Milwaukee and what Dame and Giannis can do together, against Boston and that two-way balance you talked about, I think against those teams that can figure things out in a series against the Suns defensively, especially in the case of Boston and even Milwaukee, I, I just think that those teams can reach a level on both ends that the Suns can't. Well, that's why I don't have them winning the championship. <laughs> I got them winning the West. Right. But Fair enough. my official prediction is that the Celtics will beat the Suns in the finals. So I do think they will be confronted by their limitations at some point, just not necessarily in the Western Conference. And yes, I know Denver's defense held up incredibly well in the playoffs last year. I just don't think they really played a team that was capable of stretching them out, you know, past their breaking point in a way that made them really uncomfortable. Like the Lakers couldn't really stretch them out. The Heat couldn't really stretch them out. And the Suns in theory could and did, right? Like the Suns by far had the most success scoring against the Nuggets. But by the end of that series, they were just so thin that it didn't matter, right? Because it was just Booker and KD and then three guys on the floor that the Nuggets could feel very comfortable helping off of. So I think this year it's going to be a bit of a different story. And I think they do have the goods to actually stretch that Nuggets defense past its breaking point. So that's why I wound up picking them uh, to come out of the West. But also the one thing I didn't mention about Jokic and why I feel confident in him winning MVP this year is like, that 65-game threshold really tilts in his favor. This dude has never played fewer than 65 games in a season in his career, and that career includes two seasons in which only 72 games were played. Uh, he is among the most durable superstars in the league, and I think you know that's just one added factor working in his favor toward uh, a potential third MVP in four years. Yeah, I, uh, I also have him winning MVP. I like this episode because we're giving people our bold predictions, but we were within that finding ways to give them our regular prediction too. Uh, people are getting two for the price of one here and the price of one is free anyway. <laughs> I agree with Jokic winning MVP. I'd almost argue that's not bold enough given uh, he's won you know, two of the last three. I, I no, guess but it's a, it's a parlay. I know. It is a parlay where he wins MVP and they still don't come out of the West as defending. Yeah, that's fine. I mean... I think it would have been a little bolder if you said they didn't come out, if neither of them or Phoenix came out of the West, but it's it's fine. 
I think I'm down enough on Phoenix where I'll give it to you as a as a bold prediction. All right, you want my? Well, I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't go in a different direction just because I honestly don't really see another team in the West capable of beating the Nuggets four out of seven times. So, yeah, I don't know that. The only reason I'm picking against them in the West is because of my confidence in the Suns. It's got nothing to do with any doubt that I have about Denver. I think they're going to be really, really good. And I think if that series does come to pass, it's going to be an all-timer. All right, you ready for my fourth prediction? Very much so. Still Nuggets-related, player-related. Jamal Murray makes the all-NBA team. Mm. At first, it was just going to be he makes his first all-star team. I thought, you know what? This is called bold predictions. That's not bold enough, being one of the 24-plus players that will be selected to an all-star team. No, he's going to make an All-NBA team. Remember, too, this year, All-NBA teams positionless. So it doesn't have to be that, well, and it's like, which you know guard is he beating out? Now he's going to just make an All-NBA team. I think a lot of people that are also envisioning Jamal Murray, you know, breaking through as a first-time All-Star even this year, are looking at it like he continues to build, like his regular season this year maybe looks something similar to what he's been in the playoffs. The numbers-wise, he's more of an All-Star. I actually don't even necessarily think he needs to level up that much in the regular season in order for him to break through as an all-star and potentially even an all-NBA player. I think part of it is now like reputationally and the respect that he's going to have for what he did on a champion. I mean, you can argue with whether that should carry over to the season, but it does for people that vote. And I think like, even if you look at last year, he averaged basically 20 points and six assists on pretty outrageous efficiency. If he even is a little better than that on a Nuggets team that we both still think is going to be awesome with the kind of carryover, lingering, respect, reputation, all that stuff from what he did in the playoffs for the champions. I think one, he's going to make that all-star team. And then I think especially because with him being, you know, also another year removed from the knee injury and with the players and the usual superstars, I think are going to lose eligibility this season with the new games played minimum. I think it opens the door for guys like Murray if they can crack that minimum. I'm betting that he does, and I'm betting that he gets that all-NBA selection. Man, okay, so I do think it being positionless, that's a, that's actually a, like a tough question to answer. Like, do you, who, who do you think benefits most from that if we're talking about all-NBA? Like, is it the guard crop? Perimeter players in general, I guess you can say, guards and wings. Um, like, I mean, the way it is now is it's going to be the top 15 players who played at least 65 games is essentially what the All-NBA teams are, regardless of position now. Jamal Murray, by the way, last year, 65 games on the nose. Wow. And again, one year remo- another year removed now from the knee injury and stuff. So, okay, I'm just pulling up the All-NBA teams from last year and trying to decide how many of these non-guards would have missed out if it had been positionless and Julius Randall. Yeah. Randall, probably Sabonis. If we're being real, uh, Jalen Brown, probably. And yeah. So, I mean, what is that? That's three guys right there. And you're probably making room for, for guards in that case. And it's really and only take off the guys who aren't going to didn't play 65 last year or just won't this year. Like, right. Yeah. I mean, this is not like even specifically addressing your bold prediction, which I think is totally fine and valid. It's more just thinking about how the positionless aspect of these all NBA teams is going to change things. And I do think 
right now looking at it, it's like you'd say there's only two centers that should be considered a lock to make all NBA in a positionless environment. And and now they can both make all NBA first team. True, true. That's another benefit. Uh, but yeah, I think in the in past years, you've sort of been straining to fill that third all NBA center spot. If like Anthony Davis could get up to 65 games, then you'd feel pretty good about him being one of the 15, even uh, even apart from positionality. But like, yeah, I, I think to your point, that change is probably going to benefit the guard class more than anyone else. And so that will make it likely likelier for Murray to get in when otherwise he'd be competing for six guard spots with like Steph, Luca, Shea, Donovan Mitchell, Devin Booker, Dame. Like that's six guys right there without even mentioning Ant Edwards, Trey Young, Jalen Brunson, Kyrie, De'Aaron Fox, Tyrese right, well, Halliburton, Kyrie, Darius Garland. Games, let's be real. Fair enough. But the point is like that it's just a ton of guards competing for not very many spots or it had been. And now this will make it easier for maybe more of them to make it through. Um, okay. My last one, James Harden will get traded, but not to the Clippers. Okay. Do you have a specific team in mind as part of that? Or is no, I, will give I just, you that even that on itself as you know, is bold enough, but do you also have a team in mind? I don't like who I, I just, cause right now, it's hard to see another team that would have remotely the same kind of motivation to trade for him as the Clippers do. Who don't even but I'm, seem motivated. I'm, no, yeah, exactly. And I'm, that's why I'm just banking on eventually some team gets off to a not great start. Or maybe even it's a team that gets off to a better start than they were expecting to. And that makes them more interested in making a kind of win now trade than they would have been otherwise. I just think eventually, like Maury is not going to budge. The Clippers seem like they're not going to budge. And like right now they don't have a reason to, cause they're the only bidder. And I think ultimately they'll just get to a point where they're like, man, Malcolm Brogdon is going to cost us so much less and probably be less of a headache. Let's just go in that direction instead, you know, keep our first round picks or keep Terrence Mann. you know, like one or the other, and get still like a good guard who can really help us, but who isn't going to cost as much and maybe won't be as much of a flight risk and as much of a headache, you know? Maybe it's like, you know, DeRozan becomes the target for them if the Bulls really stumble out of the gate. Like, I just think eventually another option will present itself that makes the Clippers feel comfortable just punting on the Harden thing because they can't bear to to part with their remaining draft capital. They can't bear to part with Terrence Mann. I still think that's crazy. But also, like, part of me understands it, and I think it's just going to get to a point where both parties are ready to to move on. So that's my last bold, bold prediction is Harden ends up somewhere, somewhere other than Philly and other than L.A. I like it. All right. My last bold prediction is, uh, I will admit, quite underwhelming and... Partly here just for some comedic relief at the end of this episode, but I, I do think it's fun, and I, I, I'll explain how it's bold, even though it sounds hilariously bland. My last bold prediction is that the Orlando Magic finish with a top 20 offense. Do you want to know where the Orlando Magic have ranked in offense the last 11 seasons? 
I'm guessing no higher than 20th. 27th, 29th, 27th, 22nd, 28th, 25th, 22nd, 23rd, 29th, 29th, and last season 26th. They have not even finished 20th. They have not had a top 20 offense in 12 years. Now, I still think a lot of the same issues that have plagued them offensively over the last decade plus are still here. Still shooting and spacing issues, etc. But I just believe after what we saw from Paolo Banquero last season, his ability to get to the free throw line and, and create shots and use his smarts to overcome his own shooting challenges... What I think Franz Wagner will be in his third year, you know, already was he was as a sophomore last year, but as a most improved player candidate this season, what Markel Fultz is doing now um, and how that helps an offense, his ability to get to the rim, Mo Wagner being hyper-efficient inside, Cole Anthony's improving shooting, Joe Ingles bringing his shooting, playmaking, and smarts to this team, Jalen Suggs a year older. I'm not saying they're going to be a good offensive team. Heck, they might even be 20th. But that would literally be the first time some poor kids in Orlando have ever seen such a scintillating offense. <laughs> I like it. So that's my last hilariously bland, bold prediction that I hope brought some comedic relief to end our 10 bold predictions. The Orlando Magic, for the first time in 12 years, will have a top 20 offense. And if I had to bet on my... If, if someone told me this is actually going to end up being correct, I would bet on them being the 20th ranked offense. Okay. Yeah, I, I I back it. I think it's plausible enough, bold enough, based on the offensive ineptitude over the last decade plus that you just laid out, that uh, it totally works. And I think based on how good I think Franz and Paolo can be, like as early as this season, I think it's, it is justifiable. Uh, I do think shooting is going to be a limitation, but yeah, maybe maybe Ingles can help them out enough in that department that they have enough space to breathe. To just and, be better than 10 other NBA teams on that side of the floor. Yeah. Um, I was also thinking, because you asked me about Harden and like where he could potentially end up, if not the Clippers, honestly, it makes no sense as a culture fit, but I think in terms of like a basketball fit, and the type of team that could actually really use his skill set and mask his limitations, Miami, man. Like, you know, they whiffed on Dame. They still need somebody. I thought, I thought you were going to say Orlando. <laughs> oh, I thought, I thought we were combining these bold predictions. Dude, They, I mean, look, it's funny. Like, they, they do have a lot of guards. It's just... No, None of their not, guards can really shoot. They're not trained. Like you mentioned Cole Anthony. He did have his best shooting season last year. 36%, like, baby. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't think... Uh, no, they're not trained. I don't think a young please, please rebuilding continue. team like that is risking blowing up their fragile chemistry by bringing in a, a volatile element like James Harden. But, but yeah, I, I guess if we were talking about the type of team that I mentioned where it's like they get off to a better than expected start, and maybe that prompts them to make that type of a win now move. Like if, you know, if it's end of December and the magic are like, I don't know, 20 and 10, I don't know. I guess that might be a reason for them to just be like, Hey, this is working and we don't have any pressure on us right now. Why would we do this? But it might also make them feel like maybe we're James Harden away from being legitimate contenders. I don't know. 
But Miami is the team that I could actually plausibly see getting into that mix. And maybe they are desperate enough to put the pick capital on the table to, to get Harden in the door. And, you know, I, you know, maybe they, if they put both of their tradable picks on the table, then maybe that's enough that like, they don't have to include hero. You know, they could just package like Duncan Robinson's salary and maybe like one of their moderately intriguing young guys. That's as honestly the only other team that I could come up with that makes sense for that. I mean, like the Knicks, maybe. I don't know. Even the Knicks, man, I think they they're not your older brother's Knicks, you know? Like they're yeah. they're a little smarter from that perspective. Now, I really don't think after all that they've you know, comp quote unquote accomplished, you know, in in Winning a change, playoff series. Yeah. And they beat a really good Cleveland team. And yeah. starting to change the culture there the last, you know, one to three years with Brunson there now. And with them holding all that, you know, what what I called overrated draft capital because of the protections on a lot of those picks. But still, holding all that draft capital that they think and hope can lead to a legit star, like the type of star that takes them over the hump. I just can't see them then turning around getting right back to being the Knicks of old and like moving that some of that capital for James Harden. Like I, I don't, yeah, think. I, I don't, I don't think they want anybody coming in. Who's going to take the ball out of Jalen right. Brunson's hands to that extent, yeah. honestly. Yeah. So yeah, I guess I'm saying he gets traded to Miami because I really can't come up with right. another team that would make sense. So uh, that feels like maybe my boldest prediction of all. All right. Well, I guess let's leave it at that then. Let's leave it at that, and let's get to some regular season basketball. Can't wait. Well, actually, I mean, by the time our, our listeners hear this, the res- the regular season will have already started because we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. This isn't going to go up until Wednesday, so we'll have uh, at least two games in the books as you're hearing this. Yeah, let's leave all that there, and uh, the next time we convene, we will be able to talk about some regular season observations or some news that pops up between now and then maybe a James Harden trade to the heat or the magic who knows um before we get out of here though Wolfon I believe you have a shout out to give to another Spotify listener and commenter I do indeed so shout out to Ali Hader Abdul Rashid who commented that it was his first listen from the UK as a Raps fan this was on an episode uh I don't know, three-ish weeks ago, I think after we were talking about the Raptors and their weird media day. And he said, was hoping for some positive foresight of the rap situation, but summed up well in the end, blind hope and belief in Maasai is the best we can do at the moment, which is a slightly different tenor to our last Spotify commenter who deemed Maasai a fraud. Ali Hader is opting to go the blind faith in Maasai route. And frankly, since we did that episode, which was full of a lot of, I don't know if doomsaying is the right way to go about it, but like we were not especially high on the Raptors coming into the season. I still have my share of doubts about them, but in terms of how they played in the preseason, the way that the vibe seemed to have transformed from where they were at, at that media day, whatever that was. Uh, I think there's maybe more reason for optimism about this team now than there was, you know, two, three weeks ago. So there you go, Ali Hader. Thank you for listening from the UK. And I hope on this episode where Cash laid out a case for Scotty Barnes to win most improved player. And I'm sure you've been watching the Raptors in preseason and finding 
all different reasons to have faith in this organization and in Masai Ujiri and his bold vision. So uh, there you go. You you don't need the positive foresight from us, man. The team is uh, ready to prove us wrong. But thank you for listening. Thank you for writing in. And I'll kick it back to you, Cash. Get out of here. Yeah, I'll just add that uh, that actually brings us to the end of all of our banked shout-outs that we've had from the last few weeks. Uh, some people that have reached out even when we were off in the summer. We've gone through all of them, so we now need some fans to reach out so we can shout them out. As I said before, I think we've been doing the shout-outs probably a couple years now. We've definitely shouted out a few hundred people, but as we know from the podcast analytics, there are still thousands of loyal Pound the Rock listeners out there who have never received that well-deserved shout-out. So hit us up. On Twitter, at Joey underscore double Y-O-U, at Joseph Cacharo. Email joe.wolfond at thescore.com or joseph.cacharo at thescore.com. Find me on Instagram and send me a DM at joe underscore 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 cash. Let us know how long you've been listening, where you listen from, what you like, maybe what you don't like about the show. And uh, we will definitely get you that well-deserved shout-out on a future episode. Until one of those future episodes. Until the 2023-24 season is in full swing. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Bashar. Pound the Rock. 